Welcome to the first Lean Change Management podcast. This is going to be a new series of audio and video interviews of change experts all around the world. Hope you enjoy it. And this is the first one. I'm sure the audio will get better as we go. I'm Jason Little, the author of Lean Change Management. And today uh, I have Paul Gibbons, who's the author of the this awesome book, which I was going to show on video, but we're not doing video, The uh, Science of Successful Organizational Change. And um, Paul, uh, you've got over 35 years of experience in change. And tell me a little bit about yourself and do a better introduction than I did about you and what you've got going on nowadays. Well, thanks, man. Um, thanks, Jason. And thanks for, uh, thanks for hunting me down. So, I, I, yeah, you're right. 35 years in business, only 20 of which has been in business consulting. The first half of that was spent, roughly speaking, doing traditional style change management at PricewaterhouseCoopers. So massive systems implementations. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, I don't want to say nine-figure budgets, 100 million, 200 million, $300 million budgets occasionally. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are obviously very high. And in about 2001, I started my own company, which uh, prospers to this day. I sold it, but it's in London. It's called Future Considerations. And they do uh, leadership development, work and culture change for the top five of the top 10 companies in Europe. So they're, they're a very strong, sustainable outfit. I live in the U.S. now, in Colorado, and uh, now I, I make my living, if you will, as a, a writer and a professor I teach at the University of Denver. And uh, thanks for the introduction of my book, The Science of Successful Organizational Change, which was a two-year project during which I did almost no client work. I found I had to immerse myself entirely because the book is based on and not only my experience as a change manager, uh, there are lots of people with experience in change management running around, but on the latest research from the behavioral sciences on how human beings and organizations change. And so I really do think that it's more up to date than many books which are still on the shelves. And I, I do have to uh, uh, put a parenthesis around that. I have not read yours. And uh, so it may, I may be, there may be two exceptions on this call. So anyway, that's a brief, well, that's too long an introduction, but that's a introduction, <laughs> if you will, uh, Jason. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I, I enjoyed about your book, actually. Many of the ones that I've read, they focus on a, a method or a model or some step-by-step way for, for change to happen. But I like that you brought in um, uh, neo-behaviorism and uh, a lot of neuroscience um, behind what you write as well. Um, the one thing that I really loved was you had this notion of pop psychology and could you talk a little bit about what that is and why that can be harmful in today's business world? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. First of all, I took my first course in change management in 1995. And the first model they put on the screen was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did some research in the 60s called On Death and Dying, where she interviewed dying patients. And what she said was that they go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And this we were told as... PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, change novices. Uh, This was the way that organizations and people in organizations respond to change. Mm -hmm. And so when I was writing the book, I I went back and looked at what actually people make of a research. And first of all, it's not true that people respond to death that way. Mm -hmm. People respond in a number of different ways, and there's an incredible variety. And secondly, I think it's not only not true that people in business don't respond to change that way. Some may, but equally, we may respond to change. We may respond to change like, bring it on, and I'm up for it, and and a new Mm -hmm. challenge, and excitement, and energy, and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think 
the companies we admire today, like Google, I don't think there's an eye roll every time some new change is brought, is brought, is brought forth. So that is an example of a piece of psychology that is passes more or less as dogma mm-hmm. in the change world. Nobody's saying, Hey, hang on a minute. Is that true? Right. Another dimension of pop psychology is some very excellent writers like Gladwell and whatever you may say about the science in his books, he's a brilliant storyteller, but people latch on to ideas such as his 10,000 hour rule or ideas such as emotional intelligence or ideas such as synchronicity and treat them as truth just because he says so. And in fact, just as often as not, they're not true. And so I just think we need more rigorous standards for what passes as valid about how human beings go through change. Because I don't think even my friends in the expert community who read Gladwell's stuff typically don't go any further and inquire as to whether Gladwell is actually accurate. So anyway, that's my criticism of pop psychology. I think I think most people don't go any further than the psychology books um, that are popular on Twitter or on Amazon. And I don't think those are a very faithful representation of what's true about human beings. Again, I'm sorry if that's too long. I hope that's, I hope that's the sort of answer you're interested in. No, that's, that's, uh, I, I get the same feeling um, because there is a lot of focus on how do we overcome change resistance. And I think a lot of people that latch onto these simple models about the, the, those negative reactions people mm-hmm. have, to change is what helps them sell certifications and courses and books and, and, and things like that. Uh, it seems like everywhere you look nowadays on Twitter or uh, in LinkedIn, it's here's how do we overcome resistance to change and how do we change people's minds? Um, and they skim the surface of some of these models, but they don't look at things like everyone is going to respond to change differently. Everyone has their own personal experiences that they've been through. Everybody has their core belief system that they're attached to. And it, it, it implies and it assumes that the people in organizations are all robots and they're all responding the same way. So there's some kind of magical model or method that's going to help us deal with this resistance. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you've actually said it's very hard to sell. If you said in the introduction to your book, the variety of ways that people go through change is as infinite as the varieties of people that there are in the planet, and we don't have a recipe book that fits all of them. Right, right. Uh, people would say, well, hang on a minute. I want the answer. What's the, what's the How do people change? Yeah, yeah. And the answer is, in truth, it's not, it's not uniform. It's not. Anyway, so, so I think we agree, which is lovely. Yes, yeah. And, and I think that's largely what's missing in the change, the change community nowadays. It's the, seeing those things on the surface. And when they fit into our core beliefs and it makes sense to us, then it's great. This is all I need to learn. And you, you get the dolphin effect where you know, people are kind of sprouting in and out at the top of the water and not diving in deep enough to really question some of those underlying assumptions, which is why I like that you brought in neuroscience behind a lot of what, what's in your book. And uh, there's a great quote in here that I, I do have to actually look at the book to read it because I don't remember it verbatim. But um, we have minds that are equipped for certainty, linearity, and short-term decisions that must instead make long-term decisions in a non-linear, probabilistic world. Which um, I, I love that quote as a summary of the problem that I see with what a lot of change managers are faced with now. So you know, working on these massive digital transformations or in my world, agile transformations, people want to plan. They want to feel certain that, 
hey, we're headed in the right direction when this type of transformational change is something they've never done before. Mm. And our brains love that stuff. I've been a fan of uh, David Rock's stuff for uh, quite a while about how the brain responds to social threats and things. So I'm glad you brought that element in as well as there's a lot of challenging those assumptions. Uh, you get into a lot of cognitive biases and, and things like that in your book as well. And I, I'm glad more of that is coming into the the, uh, the change community so we can stop focusing on that resistance. So I guess my, my next kind of uh, topic I wanted to get into uh, as deep as we could anyway is around that 70% change failure stat. And well, I, I love that. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. It's a good way to open the book. I do want to say one thing, though, you know, in areas like in, in psychology, like whether practice or talent leads to high performance. First of all, it's an enormously complex. But what's important is not whether Paul Gibbons or Malcolm Gladwell are right, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex issue. But what matters is, as change practitioners, is that we have the debate among ourselves and that we don't because Gladwell says it or because John Cotter says it or because Clayton Christensen says it, say, oh, that must be the truth. Mm -hmm. They're not prophets in that sense of the word. They are at best scientists and sometimes just journalists and they're human. And just because an idea is popular and accepted doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. So on to 70%. <laughs> so uh, of course I heard that when I, that's uh, 20 years ago, you know, and again, it was just something until I wrote, until I actually started researching this book, I would have, you know, I would have spouted that myself. I would have spread that around. So what do I think about that? First of all, it's not true. <laughs> so how about that? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's not that far out. But the, the current research, lots and lots of surveys, is the numbers are around a half, 45%. So mm -hmm. that's pretty horrible. It's better, but, not, but still horrible. And so one of the interesting questions is whether all big change is like that, like a baseball batting average. If you bat 300, you're awesome. Well, is change supposed to be like that? And right. that's kind of an interesting philosophical question. Mm -hmm. uh, and if his change is supposed to be like that, then are these detailed and thorough long project plans of two, three, five-year projects, sometimes if it's an infrastructure project, are mm -hmm. we just, is that just fantasy? Are we just telling ourselves stories, the Bhagavad Gita, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, so that's one thing about it. The second question is, if I'm a change leader, is this 70% number or even the 45% number, the revision of it, is that useful to me? And the answer is, how does that really help me as a leader to, to, to run a change program? Right. The answer is, I don't think it does. Because, first of all, organizations vary. So IBM did this survey research. And um, some organizations succeed as often as 80% and some as little as 7%. So what matters to you as Mr. Executive, Mr. CEO, or Mr. Change Leader in an organization is how often you will succeed. So that's something that we have to look each other in the eye. The second thing is different kinds of change is harder. So cultural change, according to some research from a gentleman in England, succeeds 19% of the time. So does that mean, do people who are change leaders, when they're considering a, 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 a cultural change project, look at that 19% number and factor that into the ROI. So if you're expecting to, the culture change program will save you, I don't know, $10 million. If it only succeeds 20% of the time, the number that goes into the ROI needs to be 2 million. So I don't think people do. So it matters what kind of change, it matters how good you are at change in your organization. Um, and, and so these are some of the, the ways in which that 45% figure is 
just plain useless to the person who's embarking upon a change program. We need much better numbers. And so one of the things I think is the organizations need to be much more honest and much more analytical about tracking their own successes and failures in the change world because they need, if you want, data. Uh, and they need to look each other squarely in the eye if they're launching something and say, how often do we think this is going to succeed? Is this one of these 45% deals or do we think in 80 or are we think in 19%? And what does that do for risk management and how we allocate capital and all of that? Mm-hmm. So I hope that's uh, I hope that's some satisfactory answer to the, what do I think of the 70% stuff? Yeah. The, the stance I've always taken is how that gets distilled down into a binary success or failure stat in the first place. Right, right, right. Um, well, that's another interesting yeah. image. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Because um, the uh, the studies that I've seen anyway, uh, Honorick did a consolidated study of seven or eight different papers from the mid-90s through to the you know 2010 or so from the ProSize and McKinsey's and, and Cotter and things like that and distilled it down into two factors, one being how the lack of a structured change process and the second one being people are unpredictable. And the second one doesn't seem like a problem that is solvable unless we, we all turn ourselves into robots that, you know, you can't predict how. <laughs> That's really great. But doesn't it seem to you that those are office? We need this super structured, strange process. Oh, and by the way, people are mercurial and variable and random. And Yeah. So how, how, how can we create a process that's complex enough to control the complexity of the human mind, which, you know, that, we're into the philosophical debate again. But, right. Yeah. And, um, and I like that you brought up that all changes are not created equal. So you look at a digital transformation versus, you know, the installation of a new multi-year ERP implementation. Mm. Those are quite different. I mean, when you, when we talk about, in my world, at least, moving to agile practices, what is success in that case? How do you distill something as complex that, uh, you know, it's not just about sprinkling some agile process dust onto an organization. You're talking about fundamental structural changes and financial model changes and uh, HR practices and everything is affected by this. And then we try and say, hey, it either worked or it didn't. I see lots of small successes and you may have cases, you know, at least in, in Agile, that you only have to transform, quote unquote, you know, maybe 20% of your organization. It's not a all or nothing proposition. It's, it's using complexity thinking and using moving more towards small value driven networks and looking at how cities run versus how do we apply a mechanistic approach and mechanistic thinking to changing a social system. Indeed. And is that, is that the right question? I mean, I mean, I think you're going to say no, right? That's not the right question to be asking. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a that's a self defeating question. Mm-hmm. How do we create a mechanistic, structured process for changing a social system? Yeah, and and you can't do that. You have to that's rely right. on interactions between people. That's how culture emerges. It's the interactions between the people. But uh, I, I find the focus on that number again. It's more from firms that need to sell something or you go into an organization that wants to do a three-year transformation, you have to have some way of selling certainty to them when you know you can't really guarantee that certainty. And uh, that sort of leads into um, yeah. something, I don't know if you've heard about uh, what the ACMP has been coming up with. They call it the standard. Oh, I haven't heard of that yet. It's, uh, it's, it's it, much like the name implies, it's a standard approach of best practices to change. 
it's interesting read that uh, what I got out of it anyway was great. You can now sue companies that do not follow the standard if you don't get your ROI. <laughs> if you <That's> right. <laughs> and it just it seems like a huge leap backwards. And you know we've got models and co-creating change that go back to the twenties, like almost a century <laughs> worth of thinking and. Uh, different types of approaches for change. And now we're sort of leaping back into the way things were when, you know, standardization and, and, and linear thinking was popular in the manufacturing eras. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Well, I haven't, uh, you, that's news to me. I'm obviously, mm-hmm. I don't keep up with the ACMP's um, edicts, if you will. Yeah. No. <clears throat> yeah. It does seem sort of a retrogressive step to mm-hmm. me in my but you know, without having looked at it too closely, I, I suppose we should we should give it the the benefit of. Have you given it a close examination yet, uh, Jason? Or are you like me, just uh, just seen the headline? Uh, I read through it. Uh, they had a, an early reviewer feedback um, site posted where you could read through it and you could post your comments section by section and things like that. The interesting thing is, I, it's it's not even so much the content that's in there because there is a lot of good stuff in there around you know, using common sense and looking at patterns and, and making judgment calls and things that are not black and white. But the fact that they call it the standard, I think, is what is going to do more harm than good, because people will just interpret that word in a certain way. Well, I must familiarize myself with that. I must familiarize myself with it. Uh, it sounds uh, it sounds interesting, at the very least. Uh, I don't know if it's accurate, but it sounds interesting. Very good. How are you doing on time, sir? I think we're doing we're doing pretty good. We're up to probably just under fifteen minutes, I think, in total since, okay. since we started the questions. Um, so I guess I, I would just uh, go through maybe two two more questions. Uh, sure. One was around seven uh, S McKinsey's seven yeah. S that you mentioned, and again, I'm coming from more of an agile stance, and there is very little information about how to use some of these ideas for. Um, uh, helping implement agile in an organization. Are, yeah. are you are you familiar? Have you worked with any companies or or, or done any reading about uh, agile transformation or anything? I, I haven't. I have indeed, and it's an area which I think is really important. You know, I'm super cautious mm-hmm. about grabbing a budget buzzword, whether it be transformation or reengineering or whatever right. word, and deciding that this has become the answer. However, right. maybe agile is different mm-hmm. because I do think. The word, the word really properly captures the kind of organizations that can prosper in the 21st century, or in any century, probably. Mm-hmm. The notion of being nimble and being quick on your feet and, and uh, able to reinvent yourself in the face of strategic threats and able to reorganize yourself to be more efficient when that's demanded of you. Mm-hmm. But I really do think it captures the essence of something important. So, you know, I, I hope that... Um, we can uh, harness under the agile banner a lot of the stuff that, frankly, has been around for 50 years, mm-hmm. as well as new thinking. I mean, the stuff on um, agile project management, to me, uh, looks, looks new. Uh, it doesn't look like something that was around 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I hope that that newer stuff and some of the stuff on self-managed work teams or more flexible organizational structures which has been with us for 50 years is can be harnessed to good use under the agile banner. So mm-hmm. that's, my, that's my hope. Okay. Okay. So, um, Are you with me there, is that your, uh, your take, uh, roughly speaking or, or 
Um, for me, it was around the, the patterns of how the Agile community has evolved since it was created, really. 2001 is when the Agile Manifesto was created. Right, right. And, and since then, a whole bunch of different Agile practices have been created. Mm-hmm. Um, now the community has gotten to a point where Agile is being more openly discussed in, you know, CIO Magazine and Forbes and HBR and things like that. So the word is starting to come up a lot, which is making the more mainstream business community uh, latch onto it. Mm -hmm. And what Agile practitioners are doing now is starting to reach into toolkits from change and OD. So when Agile first started, you know, it's the the innovators and the early adopters. You could just sort of go in with, here's our values and principles, and we have to align around our values and principles and just be Agile. And that was the extent of it. And then for the people where, you know, that fit into their belief system, that worked great. And then now you start to get into a point where you're going to larger organizations and you're, and you're, you're having discussions at the sea level and you just must be agile doesn't fly at that level. So the agile community has kind of learned that um, first they discovered uh, Peter Senge's stuff. And then that became the next greatest thing in agile. Then uh, somebody uh, the people are starting to discover Cotter's eight steps and going, Oh my God, this is now the greatest thing. And we have to follow these eight steps to bring forth agile change. And over the last couple of years, it has been more in uh, intentional organizational design is what makes agile work. So that is focusing on breaking down structures, whereas instead of having a functional structure, you know, your typical analysis, development, testing, you're now creating value streams or small value-driven communities. What are you going to do with the 10 managers that all manage different functional groups now when they're, they all have to work together? Where's the place for them? And now you start to get into lessons learned from reorganizations and, um, fundamentally structuring organizations differently. So they're structured around the customer versus being inward focused. Mm-hmm. There's a lot the agile community can learn from that, from, from the, the change space, you know, given what you know about agile so far, once we start to get into the organizational layer and into the leadership layer, what, what lessons have you seen that the agile community could sort of take hold of so they can bring more positive change in organizations? Well, I mean, one thing, um, so, I mean, there's a couple of things, I mean, but for the one thing is, um, we, we learned in the change in OD community is that there's a myth in the world. And it's a myth as someone who's led organizations. Um, it's a myth that is very seductive psychologically. And that is, it's cumbersome to involve lots of people at the start. What's more efficient is we at the top of this organization or the top of this team, We'll figure out what to do, and then we'll convince other people of the rightness of our thinking, and then they'll follow along because we'll communicate and engage and do all of that kind of nice change management stuff. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work as often, nearly as often, <laughs> as we'd like mm-hmm. it to. Mm-hmm. You know, as someone, again, who's been very senior, I'd like it to work that way. I'd like to decide what ought to happen, and then I'd like to get everybody beneath me, if you will, to engage and follow through and to become passionate about and to share my vision and all that. That's not the right way to think about it. One of the right ways to think about it is a better way to think about it is that uh, the more people we involve early on, even though that may be time consuming at the outset, it saves lots and lots of time and lots of sauce of loss of inefficiency down the road. So when I think that's a mistake that, 
I don't know. It's almost, it's almost, I don't know. I wouldn't like to guess percentage, but that's maybe the most common change mistake is to assume that you can involve people somewhere down the road and that, um, and that, that method will work. Right. So that's, that's one. I, I, I assume, mm-hmm. does that drive your own experience uh, of the, we'll figure out what to do and then figure out how to get people along with us later. Yes. And some of that I believe is, is structure, right? You've got who's, who are the change people that are responsible for this? So you get them in a room and you get them to come up with a plan and unleash it on the rest of the organization without, at least in an agile sense, the people who are affected by whatever that change is are the people best suited to design that new work system with the help from the change team. But I think it's um, they think it's too much cost at the start, like you said. And the second close one for me is just it's uh, it's not their responsibility; it's yours because we have to measure the change people the same way we measure everybody else. They have to have their performance reviews or contract reviews or whatever it is, and then that whole systemic effect just magnifies itself. There's an example in the book of uh, Qantas Airlines uh, bought in a new part system in engineering. The, the senior executives selected the supplier, selected the new part system. The engineers refused to use it. It was the part system was called SmartJet. They called it DumbJet, and basically they had to throw the things out. And I think it cost them fifty million dollars. Wow. And the CFO of Qantas was quoted in the press as saying, "This is one of the things you never lived down for your whole career." To say, "Why would we ask the engineers what kind of system we should put in? We'll put in the one that we think is best." <laughs> yes, and then. Yep. Uh, so it's a very material example, and that's a lot of money of, of that sort of thinking uh, backfiring. So that's one lesson, I think, that yeah. the Agile community doesn't need to make mistakes like that because the change community, in a sense, made those mistakes for them a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so is there anything you'd like to, uh, any other topics that you'd like to chat about? Well, I think, you know, we promised 20 minutes and 20 minutes is a good length of time. I'd love to do this again. I found this a very stimulating discussion. I've really enjoyed listening to your views. Um, I, I do want to say uh, I blog on paulgibbons.net, www.paulgibbons.net. I do want to invite people, uh, if they do manage to read the book, to uh, write a commentary on a review, uh, you know, hostile or, 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 or positive, uh, whatever it is. I, I think I'll follow the the Donald Trump uh, mantra that all publicity is good for publicity. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like more discussion about it. One of my favorite authors, Nassim Taleb, said, you can tell the quality of a book by the, if you want, the intelligence of the strongest critic. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's really bad. Nobody will bother to talk about it. So anyway, I hope that people yeah. talk about it uh, more. And I'm very grateful to you, Jason, for finding the book and for reaching out to me and and i hope we can do some more talking and learning together that sounds great all right thanks very much for uh for joining me very good take care you too thanks very much for listening you can find out more information about this podcast and other information about lean change management at www.leanchange.org thanks for listening